Let me just ask you to use your imaginations for a second, okay? Scotland, of course, if you follow rugby at all, lost to Wales yesterday. Just, just. We've got a pretty good team just now. And so I'm thinking, oh, this could have been our year. This could have been it. This could have been back to the glory days. But once again, not to be. So I'm asking you to use your imagination. I know it's a stretch, but imagine that Scotland won all their games in the Six Nations next year. Okay? Captain Stuart Hogg. What a leader. He's ready to lift the trophy. Bagpipes are at the ready for blaring. Fireworks are about to go off. It's going to be a great moment of national pride. You can see the trophies there. Now, I remember the last time you lifted a, a, a trophy in that tournament. I can't even call it the Six Nations because it was the Five Nations at the time. Uh, and it was back in 1999. And they actually took the trophy around all these different rugby clubs. I, I got to touch the trophy. Oh, a long time ago, I was only 14. And that wasn't even the Grand Slam. We haven't won the Grand Slam since I was a five-year-old boy. So if this was to happen, we would have been waiting a long time. This would be quite the moment. And I want you to imagine that moment. And then, imagine this. Stuart Hogg, Scotland's victorious captain, decides, I'm not going to lift the trophy, I'm going to give that trophy to someone he feels is more worthy. Someone that he then leads us in cheering for instead of him, instead of the team. That's what happened here in our passage when David is finally king. He's finally united these 12 tribes it's a glorious moment. You think the king is going to be given a procession. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to have this crowning moment. You think, come on, David, it's your, ch- it's your time. It's your time. But that's not what he does. 30,000 gather to him. The celebration of this conquering king. They're all saying, here he comes. Long live the king. But that mighty procession isn't for him. Instead, he instructs the people to lift up a box. A box that is 1,500 by 600 millimetres in modern money. So why make so much of a wooden box? What could possibly be so important? Why? Are they lifting this thing up in the air and making much of, it, much of it? Because this is far more than an ornate piece of furniture that you might imagine yourself seeing in a cathedral. The ark had a seat on top of it like a throne. And on either side of the seat were mighty cherubim, these incredible guards, angelic beings, that like the angelic beings that were Uh, put to the east of Eden after the fall were to guard the presence of God. In Chronicles 28.2, David described the ark as Yahweh's footstool. Kings ruled from thrones with feet on footstools. This ark, symbolically, 
was saying, God is king. By giving the ark a procession like this, David is saying, hey, I don't really rule, God rules. He is the king, not me. And the center of it was the law, the tablets of stone. It contained the Ten Commandments. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God's unfailing love to his people. The Ark said that the one true God speaks, he reveals himself. And so here, God is saying, uh, David is saying, look, God still speaks today. Let's lift him up. Let's listen to him and to his word. Obey the voice of the Lord, not mine. The throne-like seat on the ark was actually often called the mercy seat, used for the yearly sacrifices of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, this great day in the calendar for the Jews. And like Aaron was instructed in Leviticus 16, all the high priests were to sprinkle blood seven times on the mercy seat, the atonement cover, because seven meant completion. God would forgive them all their sins. Just remember that number seven, we're going to come back to it in a minute. When David gave the ark this procession, he was bringing Israel to repentance. He was saying, we need God's forgiveness. And the ark was supposed to be positioned in the center of the community as a sign that God was with them. Moses so closely identified Yahweh's presence, God's presence with the people, that when they picked it up in the wilderness, he said, advance, O Lord. And when they put it back down, he said, return, O Lord. By giving the ark a procession, David was saying, God is with us. We are not like the other nations. We don't just have a king, a human king. We have God himself with us. The ark was a display in the midst of Israel's, of Israel, declaring Yahweh's glory. A sign that pointed to the God who rules over everyone, everything. The one who speaks, the one who forgives us of our sins, the one who is with us. God did not hide his glory from his people, but we need to recognize something here. The ark has not been in the story since 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7. That's the last time it was mentioned. So where's it been? What's been going on? God does not hide his glory from the people, but the people try to hide his glory. The most grievous sin that God's people can do. It's been hiding, we know in verse, uh, verse 3 tells us, in the house of Abinadab. The glory of the Lord has been sidelined in Israel. There is no more serious accusation. When the Philistines had captured the ark, you might remember that the text says, the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel for the ark of the Lord has been captured. 
So this is a major moment when David is reinstating the ark at the center of the community. All glory be to God, says David, a man after God's own heart. It's far too easy to live your life that way, isn't it? To hide away the glory of the Lord, to not live first for him. It's too easy for your Bible to live in your cupboard. Too easy for prayer and worship to be on the sidelines of your life. Do you need a moment like this? Do you need a moment to return to his kingship, to his word, to repent and know his forgiveness, to be reminded that he is with you? In many ways, that's what Sundays are. They're like this procession. They are the high point of our week. We read the Word of God. We sing the Word of God. We proclaim the Word of God. God is with us. We remind each other when we gather together that He is with us by the power of His Holy Spirit. Sundays are glorious, not because of us, but because of the glory of God. We remind one another of God's glory and what we want to live for. He leads, David leads the people into worship. He doesn't lead them to himself. Good leadership in the kingdom of God is not about leading people to you. We don't want big characters who get a lot of attention because of them. We want people who draw others to God. That is leadership. Psalm 24 is probably written for this occasion. It was read earlier, lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord almighty, he is the king of glory. There was a party getting started. They were singing. The band was going. This was the celebration they'd all be waiting for. But, unbeknown to the revelers, a problem was bubbling away in the background. Something dreadful was brewing Since Samuel, there had been a distinct lack of preaching and teaching. Very few accounts of prophets had been given proclaiming the word of God. And the commandments were out of sight behind closed doors. And it's about to be revealed that that had had a huge impact on the way that they viewed God. In the book of Numbers, God had given specific instructions about to hand out how you handle the ark. Number seven said that the sons of Koeth were given special priestly instructions to carry the ark. The other priests involved received carts to carry the sacrifices, which is interesting because the sons of Koeth are specifically not given carts. In fact, they are to carry the ark. You can imagine it, can't you? David sends them down to get the ark and they put it on a cart. Uh Uh-oh. And when they do, some brave soul (laughs) pipes up 
Uh, it, 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 didn't God um, warn us not to put it on a cart? Didn't the law say that we shouldn't? And remember, in Numbers 4, God has already said that he didn't want any of us to die. He warned us he didn't want us to die and that we must not touch the holy things, like the ark, or we will die. Shouldn't we be careful to obey all the commands of God? Oh, for Pete's sake, who invited this guy? Come on, lighten up, mate. Relax, don't be so uptight. You don't think that's to be taken too seriously, do you? That isn't what it really means. I'm sure it'd be okay if you just put it on a cart this one time. Let's do that, shall we? Let me take you back to New Year 2001. My parents had let me have a party in the back half of the house, in the garage, really, half the kitchen and the garden. It wasn't really to be a party, it was to be a small gathering. They were having a bit of a party in the front room. I think they just wanted to keep an eye on me. Just after midnight though, bells had gone, we'd had a nice wee time. About 150 to 200 people were crowded into a garage, a garden, a small part of the kitchen, and now spilling out onto the streets. A fight breaks out, and the police arrive. And the party was over in an instant. All these underage drinkers running as fast as they both possibly could. It just ended like that. None of those people with FOMO staying to the end, making sure they didn't miss out on anything. Guilty. This didn't end with the stragglers, it ended like straight away. And that really is what happens to Israel's party too. Something shocking brings it to a sudden and definite end. Uzzah, one of the men guiding the cart with the ark on it, saw that the oxes were falling, one of the oxes was falling in amongst the carnage. And so he reacts. He reaches out to grab it. No big deal. Seems a fairly normal thing to do. In a moment, Yuza, Yuza is gone. He's dead because he's touched the holy things of the Lord. This is tough reading, isn't it? <laughs> Lord, why have you put this in here? I mean, we're trying to grow a church here. This isn't exactly Instagram material. Don't be tempted to think you must rescue God from popular opinion. His word will endure. It always has. This is why we go through the Bible verse by verse. Most of the time, sometimes we do thematic preaching, but most of the time we're going through a book and this is why. We don't want to miss this out. We, we want to know exactly what all of God's word reveals to us. We don't want to avoid the difficult bits. That's why we encourage you to do grace Bible reading with two or three others. A plan that takes you through the New Testament and Psalms every year and the Old Testament every three years. You can see our website for a plan. Good advertisement. Is that good? Good. As Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 
so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you see that? All Scripture is God-breathed. Let's take heed of the warning from Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, 4th century North Africa. He said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Do you trust yourself enough to challenge God? Or will you wrestle with the teaching of his, teachings of his word in your heart? Will you wrestle so that you might submit to him and obey him? So what does Uzzah's death in 2 Samuel 6 teach us then? Well, the first thing is this. God is holy and out of the glory of his holiness comes judgment and blessing. I'm going to say that again. God is holy, and out of the glory of his holiness comes judgment and blessing. First judgment, verse 7. It tells us God's anger was burning against Uzzah for this irreverent act. It's a shocking thing. And it's an awesome moment in its truest sense. Not the kind of awesome I ever seen in Clueless. God's holiness filled the air. And with an intake of breath, everyone who saw it was filled with wonder and fear before God. With shocking clarity, they knew that God's word was to be revered. That his glory was near and that they were not worthy of it. The Bible says all of us are like Uzzah. There's an insurmountable distance between God's holiness and the muck of the sin in our hearts. God is holy, we are not. For all have short, fallen short of the glory of God, says the Apostle Paul to the Romans. The Bible is clear. By our own efforts, we just ain't all that. And so, David's temporary reaction in verse 9, to keep the ark, the glory of God, away from him, is actually, in some ways, really pretty smart. He's right to be terrified. When we get a glimpse of the glory of God, the holiness of God, while we see something of our own sin, we surely can't help but run. God is terrifying and I, I fall short, well short of the standard needed. Lord, let me stay far from your dread-inducing glory. Keep that Bible in the cupboard. Remain distracted by scrolling social media and news feeds, drink to forget, keep obsessing over romance and sex, get lost in the hobby, keep reinventing yourself with new identities, keep focused on that career, make your kids your world, whatever it takes, just run. Except, the problem is, you can't run forever. Judgment comes to all. Uzzah's story is a sobering picture of the natural direction of travel for all human beings. Judgment. 
and death. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that, face judgment. But there's not just judgment in this story, is there? If you read carefully enough, if you read on, if you don't just write this off once you get to Uzzah's death, there's blessing too. When David sends the ark away to Obed-Edom, something extraordinary takes place, something that doesn't quite fit with the direction of travel we've just talked about, with this direction that we're going to. It doesn't fit with judgment and death. So what's going on? Because after three months, David gets a report from this Philistine house, Gentile, not one of God's chosen people in Israel, that there's been blessing. That because of the ark, they've been blessed. So that means that blessing and judgment come from the same source. But how can this possibly be? How can this terrifying piece of furniture with a God who is holy, holy, holy rests in his glory on it bring anything but judgment to people who have fallen short of his standards? How can this possibly be? How can a holy God be reconciled to unholy people and give them blessing? And the Israelites should be asking, especially Gentiles. Look at verse 13. Now they carry the ark. They go to get it. David realizes there's blessing to be received from God. And this time, David asks them to carry the ark six steps before stopping them. Why does he stop them after six steps? To make sacrifices. The seventh step was to be a stop, a rest. And a sacrifice to God was to be made. What was that about? Well, the number seven is very significant in the Bible. Beginning with creation, it's a number to symbolize the completion and rest of God. And its symbolism is all over the place. In fact, if we were observant, as observant as Peter Lightheart in his commentary that I was reading this week, we would see that it's right here in this text. Seven times the ark is referred to in this passage, this one chapter, as the ark of the Lord, the ark of Yahweh. Then another seven times the ark of of God. It's saying that the enthronement of God represented in the ark being lifted up and put in his rightful place, giving glory to God in this passage is screaming out to us that when God is king, blessing comes. It's a new kingdom come. Only under his holy and perfect rule can everlasting peace be established on the earth. You want peace? You want justice? You want love? You want a perfect place to live forever? You want to return to Eden-like blessing? You need the rule of God. There's no other way. And he needs to deal with sin so we can enter in to holiness to receive from him, to be reconciled to him, to be with him forever. So the peace and joy of God's blessing can only come when he rules with perfect justice. If there is no justice, there is no holiness, and therefore there is no blessing, no peace, no joy. God's holiness keeps us from God, but amazingly, it is that only through his holiness 
that we can actually go near to him and receive blessing from him. How can that be? How has that worked out? The ark reminds me of someone. Someone who should have the number seven shirt on his back. The one we can find rest in. The one who has come to bring justice and mercy and establish the kingdom of love and mercy. The one who Hebrews 1 describes as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his being. The one who is called Emmanuel, God with us, the truth, the yes and amen to all of the promises of God throughout Scripture. The one who provided purifications for our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. The ark was a sign of God's glory, but Jesus came as the glory of God and he has not left us in our sin distant from God and from all of his blessings, he has come near to rescue us from our sin. At the cross, his mercy and judgment meet. Jesus, the holy God himself, becomes the solution to the great chasm between humanity and God. As the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Justice is always done. Every sin held to account. In the end, I know there is plenty of injustice in the world right now. The good news, justice will be done. If we put our trust in King Jesus out of his great mercy, all of them, all of our sins, are dealt with in him. But if we don't, and this is the warning, we must face the judgment we deserve ourselves. The Bible's clear. Charles Spurgeon puts it like this, God in his infinite mercy has devised a way by which justice can be satisfied, and yet mer mercy can be triumphant. Jesus Christ the only begotten of the Father, took upon himself the form of man and offered unto divine justice that, was, that which was accepted, accepted as an equivalent for the punishment due to all his people. The hymn here is love is one of my favorite ever songs. I love it. It describes a wonderful, with wonderful poetry how this justice, judgment, and this mercy and grace meet at the cross. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Once we were like 
Uzzah. Terribly short of God's glory. Far from the holiness of God. We were destined for judgment and death. But now, look out for that phrase in the New Testament, but now, if we put our trust in King Jesus, we are destined for his new creation. Which is, by the way, that final day of the whole arc of the great biblical story. The final day that we might call the seventh day when Jesus will return and establish a day that will last forever, an Eden-like day, a day where Jesus comes back king of all the earth and establish his reign forever. It will be perfect and glorious and wonderful. And Jesus has come to invite you into his kingdom. He's come to share his inheritance. He's come so that you might be a son or a daughter of God who sits around the table with the same God who seemed inapproachable. Now you approach the curtain, the veil has been torn in two, and you come confidently, boldly to God. And the only way that it's possible is because justice and mercy meet at the cross because Jesus, who is God, the embodiment of God, came, died in your place. And by the way, the cross was not necessary except for you and my sin. And Jesus said, I'll take that for you. I'll take Uzzah's death for you. I will become sin for you. I will die in your place so that you can live forever. And he was resurrected on the third day. And then he was raised into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God. He's enthroned right now and he's poured out his spirit upon you. The Holy Spirit is in this room. God himself, the God who you could not get near, is in this room. And he's made you a temple. He's made you a priest. He's made you a saint. He's declared you holy. He will never fail you. And you are his forever if you've put your faith in Jesus. Why is this story here? Because in it we see Jesus, and he is worthy of all the glory. Through his justice and mercy, he is worthy to be declared king. Like David, let's give God all the glory in our lives. He's made a way for it to happen. He has given us everything we need. And so let's do it. Let's do it together as the church in Glasgow. And let's declare it through our lives. Glory be to God for God's glory and Glasgow's good. And you know what? We cannot be good news for Glasgow without living to his glory. Here's what I'd love us to do. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And in the first two songs, here's what I'd love.
I'd love us all together to take communion. If, if you know Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, come and take communion. Take this bread and take this wine. And when you take it, remember that Jesus gave himself for you and that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sin so that your sin could be completely dealt with. That it would be as far as the east is from the west. That when you come to this table, you would be reminded that justice and mercy met at the cross. So that you, and not just you, but all of God's people and his new creation, his new kingdom might be formed so that you could live in it forever under his blessing. So that's what I want us to do in the first song. In the second song, I want us to remember what was in that passage when David realized that he had received the blessing. After they had taken the ark back, you'll see that David took the ark on this procession And when he did, he danced with undignified worship. So I want us in that second song to worship like David. Now, you don't need to get, let's not take any clothes off, please, okay? (laughs) But I would love us to celebrate. I would love us to be willing to be, even feel a bit, or, or maybe be tempted to feel a bit ashamed. Not be ashamed, but maybe the accusation from someone like Michal would be, oh, that's about, uh, you're a bit OTT there, mate. There's, there's reason to celebrate. So first song, communion, and let's celebrate with all our might, as it said David did. Father God, we, we love you. We thank you that this story this seemingly obscure story, this story that maybe cynics would look at and go, what, what is that? What? I can't believe that God does this. Lord, I thank you that actually when we dig into this, we see that this is part of a narrative that, that makes sense of the world. Because we look around this world, we see injustice, Lord. We see sin, we see how it damages. We see the effects of the fall and we think, oh Lord, we need saved from that. And we look at ourselves and we think, oh, I need saved from the deception of my own heart, my own sin, the toxicity of my sin in me. And I need salvation. I need you to save me. And then we see, Jesus, that you are the embodiment of the glory of God, that you are the ark come in flesh, the word of God made flesh. And that you went to the cross And there we see judgment and mercy meet so that we might be forgiven and enter in to the presence of our King. And so, King Jesus, rule in our lives. Glory be to you. Help us, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Be with us now as we take communion and as we worship with all of our might. If you have any words or anything you want to share after the second song, 
um, we would love to share those. Uh, Johnny's down here. Um, come and chat to him and uh, we'll work out if it's a good moment.